someone. There have been times that I've been driven to this desire of revenge. Well, some funny, some not so funny that happens with the idea of revenge, right? Like my sisters, I can remember wanting to, uh, really mom want, wanting to get my mom to trade them in or get rid of them completely. I had a great collection of baseball cards when I was a younger boy. Uh, and uh, so one day I come home and I find those baseball cards scattered all over my room, bent up and destroyed, some of them wet, and I was pretty frustrated that day. Uh, then there are times I wanted to take revenge on my dad for the abuse that took place in our household. Uh, I know what it's like to stand over a dad passed out with drugs and see a gun beside him and wonder, think through this, like, okay, if I kill him, I'm 14 years old, I'll get out of jail by the time I'm 18 at the latest, 21. You know, it's just uh, for the pain that he caused. What about you? Have you ever had this desire to get revenge? Maybe it was a parent who was supposed to love you, but they were the ones that caused the most amount of harm. Maybe it was a schoolmate who made every day of school miserable. Maybe it was someone uh, that you had a friendship with or a relationship with. You, put your, you made yourself vulnerable, and they hurt you deeply. Maybe it was a coworker that lied to get the job that you were trying to get. Whatever the reason, you've dreamed of getting revenge. And sometimes we've seen and heard stories that some revenge is funny, like spouses playing practical jokes on one another to get back at something. But then other times, revenge is sad and it's destructive. Like a few years ago down in Westerville, the dad that wanted to get revenge or the husband that wanted to get revenge on his wife and on a visit with his daughters, he decided to kill them with her on the phone. Revenge is a scary thing. It's a dark side. There's no doubt that there are going to be times in our lives that opportunities to revenge will, will come up. But here's what we have to remember. Before I get into the rest of this message, we've got to remember one key point. We are broken people who live in a world that's filled with other broken people. If we'll remember that one thing, then revenge will be one of those things that we kind of push away from us. How should we respond when we have every worldly reason in life to seek revenge? David is going to be a great example of that for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your time, the time we get to have in your word, for our time to get to sing songs of worship to honor you. And may you guide us with your spirit through this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So after fleeing from the presence of Saul, we kind of, that's where we left David last. Uh, he, he finds himself among a, a priest, and he, he makes up a story, and the priest helps him, and he sends him on the way. And unfortunately, Saul would kill not only that priest, but 85 others. He would seek out, David would seek out refuge in the Philistines. David realized that the only place that he could hide were in the caves. And so Saul was intent upon killing David. And, and, and through this process, there was a chase that wouldn't end until Saul's life was completely over. While David was hiding in a cave, word came from Saul, filling in some chapters here. Word came, word came from God that, um, that a city was in trouble. And so David inquired of the Lord, should he go and save the city of Keilah? And the Lord indicated that he should, and he, uh, he would deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. David and his men, they saved that city, but Saul caught word, and he went there. And so David inquired of the Lord again, will these people turn me over to Saul? And, and the Lord let him know, yes, they will. And so David continues to run. He finds himself in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And however, the Ziphites, they wanted to prove their loyalty to King Saul, so they said, he's here. Uh, and, and so Saul began to chase again, and the text seems to indicate that Saul was closing in on David, and, and then he was told that the Philistines were attacking, and he had to return. Chapter 23 ends with these words, And David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. Engedi made a perfect hideout for David and his men. It was an oasis in the desert wilderness. Uh, there was freshwater springs, there was a waterfall, there was thick vegetation, countless caves, uh, and there was a high point with which they could look out to see if an enemy was coming. 
It's believed by most theologians that David wrote Psalm 27 from this place. And and look at what he says in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread? We're going to unpack the rest of that psalm later. But what we've got to understand is that if you're in David's shoes at this point, and the one that's caused you the most misery in life, he is put on a platter or she is put on a platter right before you, or to use a sporting analogy, God's placed them on a tee and giving you the opportunity to hit it out of the park. What would you do? How would you respond? I believe David gives us a perfect example of how we should and could respond. And we find that from Psalm, or not from Psalm, but 1 Samuel chapter 24. So 1 Samuel chapter 24. The first thing I want us to see is David's temptation. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, it was reported to him saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to search for David and his men in front of the rocks of the mountain goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Then David's men said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to hand your enemy over to you, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David got up and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. What was the first thing that Saul decided to do once the Philistines were taken care of? The first thing Saul decided to do was get back to his obsession. And his obsession was ridding the earth of the presence of David. And I love the picture painted here. There's a little bit of junior high boy humor that I find in this whole story, uh, right, that's taking place here. But, But Saul comes, he has to relieve himself. And the strictest guidelines of the Jewish law meant that you couldn't relieve yourself in the camp. That's found in Deuteronomy 23, verses 12 through 14. I'm not going to read all of that. You you had to go outside of the camp. You had to take a shovel with you and cover it up. And and there was a reason for that, right? One, it was nasty. And two, the disease would come from that. So Saul finds himself in this position. He goes into the cave to relieve himself. One observation and one question. The, The observation is this. Saul's men really let him down at this point. Uh, you know, so you think about it. He should have had some kind of secret service out there ahead of him. And, and so, all right, Saul, you need to relieve yourself. Let's first go check the cave and make sure this is a safe place. After all, we know David and his men are around here. And then here's the question. How would I respond? How would you have responded? How many people in the room understand the reasoning of David's men? Right? This guy's trying to kill you. God has delivered him into your hands. Everyone will understand. Another quick point here. We've got to be careful in assuming that our desire lines up with God's will. I think that's what David's men did right here. That their desire is what lined up with God's will. David here, God has placed your enemy right before your hands. Here's your sword. Can you picture David's men after he left their presence? And the the next sound that they were expecting to hear was either a body dropping or Saul screaming in agony as David was slitting his throat. That's not what happened. David cut off the corner of his garment. When David was given the chance to take revenge, he showed mercy. He took the high road. Can you imagine the feeling of David's men at this point? We're going to talk about them here in a moment. 
At first glance, it appears as that David might have felt good about overcoming this temptation, but he has a conviction. Look at verses 5 through 7. But it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I would do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to reach out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David rebuked his men with these words. And he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up, left the cave, and went on his way. David's conviction stepped in. It's difficult to imagine how this could take place. I'm speaking in the flesh here right now. And I can kind of really resonate with the men of David at this point, right? At this point, I'm thinking, all right, God has delivered him. I have been told I'm going to be the next king of Israel. Here he is right here. I'm going to take care of him. But David, he had this conviction that set in from the Lord. Why? Because Saul was the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed, and he refused to lay a hand on him. David knew that he was going to be the next king. Samuel anointed him. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, declared it to be the case. Saul, at the end of this account, we're going to see he even declares that to be the case. But David was a man whose eyes were on the Lord, and he knew this, this promise. If God is the one who promised the throne, then God's the one that's going to deliver me to the throne. So David persuaded his men. Actually, he forbid his men. Can't you kind of picture his men at this point? All right, David, if you're not going to take care of this guy, you know, because as all, after all, he's chasing you and you're putting us in danger at this point as well. We're going to go take care of him. And David, no, no, you're not. David not only viewed this as an attack against the Lord's anointed king, but an act of disrespect for Saul as well. Let's look at David's vindication, verses 8 through 15. Afterward, however, David got up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David is seeking to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had handed you over to me today in the cave. And someone said to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not reach out my hand against my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. So my father, look, indeed, look at the edge of the robe of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the edge of your robe but did not kill you, know and understand that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but by my hand shall not, but my hand shall not be against you. And the proverb of the ancient says, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel gone out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and save me from your hand. David confronted Saul, and the, matter, and the manner of this confrontation proved that David was not a rebel. After all, did you notice he called Saul, what he called him? My lord and king, right? He made himself a subject to Saul. He was not out to kill Saul. The fact that God would be the ultimate judge between the two men, that's what David wanted to point out. And, and this is one observation that we should take here. David had a respect for the leader of God's people, even when there was a reason for disrespect. Think about that, church. 
What does, that, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean when we look around our political landscape today? This was respect for, uh, respect for king was respect for God, and I believe that all leadership, especially leadership, or especially leadership of a nation, is ordained by God. It's ordained by God. Now, there's a reason why leadership's ordained by God. Sometimes God chooses to bless a group of people with leaders, and other times God chooses to punish a group of people with leaders. Either way, do you know in Scripture there's never a cause for us? There's never any reason for us? God never says anywhere in Scripture, okay, if you don't like the leader, get on Facebook and share how much you're displeased with him. If you don't like the leader, make sure you bash him at every turn. Make him look like an ignoramus. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. See, I'm not saying that we need to support everything our leaders do, but we must, we must respect them. The Bible calls for us to do this. As a matter of fact, God tells the people when they're, in, uh, uh, when they're away in Babylon to pray for the peace of the city that they're in, to submit themselves to the king. The New Testament tells us the same. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed it will receive condemnation upon themselves. See, we can learn a lesson from David here, that even when we don't agree with our leaders and we have a reason to disagree with them, we still need to respect them and see them as being from God. They might not be doing what we think God's will is, but maybe, maybe, maybe God's will is to use them to lead a group of people further away from him so that judgment will come and give us an opportunity to repent. That's exactly what happens all throughout Scripture. Then we see David's affirmation. Look at verses 16 through 22. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice? Can you just picture this whole moment? It's uh, My son David. Then Saul raised his voice and wept, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt maliciously with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord handed me over to you, and yet you did not kill me. Though if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return, and for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, look what he says. Now behold, I know that you will certainly be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. That you will not eliminate my name from my father's household. And David swore an oath to Saul. And Saul went to his home, but David and his men went to the stronghold. Perhaps one of the reasons that Saul was so intent on killing David was that he wanted to prove the prophecy of Samuel wrong. He wanted to establish the line of his family in succession. But at this point, he's convicted Now listen, we've got to understand, it takes more than tears to prove you're repenting. It really does. You can feel guilty in a moment, make some sort of confession in a moment, but if you just follow this along two chapters later, he's trying to do the same thing, and David spares his life once more. Saul realized and confessed that David would be the next king of Israel, and the only wish that he had is that he would not wipe his family away, and David would fulfill that wish. We'll see that maybe later in David's life. There's the same expectation for the follower of Christ today. We have this expectation. The Bible declares, submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors. 
as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I believe that this is one of the most foundational moments in this, this young man David's life. And from this moment, David would go on to win many battles. He would go on to do great things for the Lord. But this is a point that I think God has used to push him there. And here's the question that I have that I want us to kind of close with this morning. How could David respond that way? Because so, when I read that and I think about just situations in my own life that vengeance or revenge seems like the practical option, seems like the option that would make me feel good, when I read this, I realize, man, there's something different that God expects from his followers. How could David do it? And here's the first thing. David sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. And if theologians are right about this, and he did write Psalm 27 from this place, look at verses 2 through 4. When the evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. If an army encamps against me, my heart will not fear. If war arises against me, in spite of this, I am confident. Look what he says in verse 4. In all of these situations, I've seen this next verse as kind of like that coffee cup verse, that verse that people put out when things, and really it's great, but should we put it in its entire context? Because David's saying, when all of life is falling apart around me, there's one thing, one thing that I seek. And he says this, one thing that I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple with life closing all around David, with this not having this understanding if he would be able to get past these threats. In the midst of those struggles, David sought the Lord and wanted to be in his presence. He would write these words as well. God, you are my God. I shall be watching for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and exhausted... (coughs) in a dry and exhausted land where there is no water. So have I seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory because your favor is better than life. My lips will praise you. God, I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. And seeking the Lord, David wanted the Lord to seek him. This is another one of those aspects. And he wanted the God to seek him. And he would write these words. I share them quite a bit. They're like really impactful on my own walk. Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Listen, I'm not saying that David took his eyes completely off of his enemies. As a matter of fact, David even declared in what we wrote, God's going to judge. God's going to be the one to bring vengeance. It's not going to come from my hands. And if you read through the Psalms of David, there are times he doesn't hold back with what he asks for God to do. Well, what about us? As followers of Christ in America, we've often confused the American dream as a biblical promise. And anytime there's an affront to that American dream that we think is a biblical promise, you know what it is, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anytime there's an affront to that, we, we just, well, we go crazy a little bit sometimes. We should know that when we're following Christ, there's going to be persecution. When we're chasing hard after him, things aren't going to go our way, Jesus declared. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Man, how often do we rejoice and be glad? For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ will be persecuted. But evil people and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As followers of Christ, we should expect that there are going to be people who will wrong us. And there are going to be many instances when these troubles arise that emotions rise up in us. That we're going to want to pay the person back. Even times that we want to use scripture as a hammer to beat people over the head. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know who those people are. If, we were to, if I were to ask you, okay... Who's that person you want to meet in a dark cave that they don't realize you're there? I don't know what that person has done to you. You may be justified and most likely are justified in the anger that you have for them. But the one thing I'm sure of is this. If you focus on that giant, on that person, the one who's caused your problems, the one who's giving you the pain, then your pain, your problems will quickly turn into a fuel for revenge. That's not what God wants. Lord willing, at the beginning of the year, we're going to read through or go through a series of the mess, uh, of messages through the, the letter of Philippians. Paul's writing this letter from jail. <laughs> Think about that. He's writing this letter from jail. Things aren't going well for Paul. And he would write these words, from, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And do we think that way? Is that what drives us as followers of Christ? Paul would go on in this letter to talk about the great chase of his life. I share these verses often, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on to declare that he's not yet reached that goal, but the one thing he does, forgetting what is behind, why do we hold a grudge? Why do we seek revenge? Don't we often do that because of those things that have happened behind us? Forgetting what is behind and straining forward or pressing forward to what lies ahead. Friends, when someone in your life gives you a reason to hold a grudge, to seek revenge, we need to learn this lesson from David. And the first thing we need to do, right? Right? Someone does something to you devastating, don't seek vengeance, seek the Lord. Right? Your parent hurts you, your child hurts you, don't seek vengeance, seek the Lord. A co-worker lies about you, you get fired or you don't get the job, don't seek vengeance, seek the Lord. Right? I mean, and this is easy words for me to say in this moment, but it's a, the reality of living them out, even though it's hard, doesn't make it less true. It's still the truth. Don't seek vengeance, seek the Lord. Second thing David did is he trusted the Lord. If God anointed him to be the king, then God would work this out. He would bring forth those circumstances. David could have taken matters into his own hand, but he didn't. Twice in this passage we read that David declared that the Lord would be the judge. Look at what he writes in Psalm 27. For on the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer sacrifice in his tent with shouts of joy, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. 
I'm going to trust God to do what he needs. He, he, he says this all over scripture that he wrote. Psalm 54, save me, God, by your name and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, God. Listen to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will pay back the evil to my enemies. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly, I sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. For he has saved me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Listen, David didn't do everything perfect. He didn't. As a matter of fact, we're going to go through an account where David had a near fall. He had a near fall in this very area. He didn't do everything perfect. He sought refuge in another land. He sought refuge in caves. But what David did do is he sought the Lord, and David did trust the Lord. Whom can we trust more than the Lord? No one. Church, I want you to understand this. No one. Especially yourself. Especially yourself. The Bible is clear. The heart is deceitful and cannot be trusted. And revenge may feel good in a moment, but in the end it accomplishes nothing but leaving you with the feeling of guilt for the wrong that you've done. And continued anger for the person who has wronged you, the only thing that does is it puts you in a prison of hate. It puts you there. David was able to declare that the Lord God would be the judge, and there are numerous Bible verses scattered throughout the Bible that declare, don't seek vengeance, like Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor hold any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Romans 12, 19, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. There is one problem when it comes to taking revenge. It's a problem that we don't often think about, but we should. How can one who has wronged others seek revenge on the one who's wronged them? Have you ever noticed that when we seek out revenge or vengeance or we hold a grudge that we often focus on the sins of people that have committed against us, but we we very rarely think about the sins that we've committed against people. We very rarely think about that. Think about it. What if every person you've ever wronged sought revenge against you? What if the kid you teased in elementary sought revenge? What if the friend you stole from in high school sought revenge? What if the one you dishonored by taking what was meant for their spouse or to be given to their spouse away from them? What if they sought revenge? What if your parent whom you respected and lied to over and over sought revenge? Truth is, none of us are truly past the point of someone else seeking revenge. And once we remember that, I think it puts us in a better position to trust the Lord, right, to care for, take care of our sin, but also to do what only he can do in their lives. Why? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <clears throat> Most of the time, our sin is an attack on a relationship against God and against others. What if God gave you what you deserve? Would you be here today? We're, we're in Acts chapter 5 in our Sunday school class right now. In, in Acts chapter 5, that's that situation where Ananias and Sapphira lied, right? And that as soon as they lied, they were carried out, their bodies were carried out. I said, can you imagine if God would deal with us that way today? that we'd have to have a set of deacons that were the body-carrying deacons. That every Sunday, God would have to be carrying people out of here because of their sin. Man, when you realize your sin, it's a lot harder to hold a grudge on the sin of others. 
We have to understand we live in a broken and fallen world. People are going to wrong you. Someone is going to let you down. You have wronged others. And this helps us to focus our hearts in times of trouble. Life does at times stink. And there are people who are going to hurt you in mighty ways. And here's what we've got to realize. Lord, I trust you to fix what I'm powerless to do in my own soul. So therefore, I'm going to trust you to do the same in the soul of someone who's wronged me. This leads to the last lesson. David showed mercy and grace. When given the chance to end the life of his enemy, he showed restraint. And out of respect for who? Out of respect for God. Now, I think it had something to do with Saul, maybe just a little bit, but mostly to do with God. I want you to think of that one person, like I've talked about, that you can meet in a dark cave. They've wronged you. They've hurt you. And from this place, if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to picture Christ on the cross. And I want you to think of the sins that he has forgiven you of. I want you to realize those things. Internalize them. Confess them again. Don't let the lies of Satan enter your heart right now. If they would not have done that to you, then you would not have done those sins. You wouldn't have walked away. We're all responsible for our own sin. And so what does God give you? Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were what? Sinners. Christ died for us. See, there's something amazing that happens when we truly understand just how amazing grace really is. Grace isn't something that we deserve. It's something that God gives out of his mercy toward us. See, we live on the other side of Christ, and if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we've received mercy and grace. And if you want to do something truly radical, forgive the one who has wronged you instead of seeking vengeance. The world tells us to seek vengeance. The Bible says differently. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. When we see our sin for what it is, for what it was, we gain a whole new understanding of God's mercy. And our problem is that we often see our sins as less grievous than the ones of people that have hurt us. That's not how God sees it. It's not. All sin separates us from a holy God, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 3. God gave us his best when we're at our worst. How can we expect the love of God in our own lives and not seek to be instruments of mercy and grace and love in the life of others? You might say, preacher, you don't know what I've been through. You're right, I don't. Don't. But I know what I've been through. I've talked about it in the past. I know what it's like to live in a prison of hate and anger. I know what it's like to want to kill one of your parents. I know what it's like to ask your mom at 12 years of age to leave your dad until you drop out of school and get a job. I don't know what you've gone through. I know what I've gone through. And I know for years, even in ministry, I carry this hate and this anger and this hurt. And I realized one day, listening to a sermon, 
man, if I could change anything in my life and go back and change it, would it be that? And if I would have changed that, realizing that God would have never put me in a position to meet April, and God would have never put me in a position to be here to receive him. So God uses every hurt that we have to bring us to a point of seeking him, trusting him, and being instruments of mercy and grace in the life of others. There's going to be a common theme in my preaching from now on. I stole it from, uh, well, we, I remember him being here, but his son, uh, Paul Ponchot. I heard Paul speak a couple of weeks ago, and he asked the question. He said, if Jesus is Lord, then. Okay? Now I'll let that sink in for a minute. Especially when it comes to this idea of vengeance and mercy and grace and forgiveness. If Jesus is Lord, then we have no excuse. None. He doesn't give us any loopholes to look through. If Jesus is Lord, then we're without a choice when it comes to this. For if you forgive other people their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, your heavenly Father will not forgive your offenses. Whew. Let the truth of it sink in. We can try to explain it away all we want. If Jesus is Lord, then you must forgive. You must forgive. How? Seek the Lord and trust Him. When you do, I believe that you'll find yourself closer to God and offering mercy and grace when revenge is in order. And I believe this is the lesson that God wants for us to have from this time of David's life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together this morning in it. May your spirit implant into our souls the lessons that we need to take. May we be able to walk out of here this morning with that statement firmly planted on our minds. If Jesus is Lord, then man, I have no excuse. God, I, I want some to understand that forgiving doesn't mean putting themselves in a position to be physically hurt or harmed in any way. Uh, and it doesn't put themselves in a position to be used over and over again. And that's not what you're calling us to, but you do call us. You do call for us, Lord, not to seek vengeance. Not to hope that someone burns in hell. But to be instruments of mercy and grace when we have that opportunity. As the Bible says, as far as it depends upon us, to live at peace with all people. So God, if Jesus is Lord, then help each of us to carry this out of this room this morning and apply it right where we need it. Give us the strength to do so, Lord, through your Spirit. We pray these things in your Son's most holy name. Amen. Maybe this morning that uh, one of the reasons that this might be a problem is uh, uh, you've forgotten some of these verses, or maybe you haven't given your life to Christ. The Bible tells us that if we're apart from Christ, we need to start with that first step, to declare Him to be the Lord of our lives. What that means is that we have a realization of our sins, that we repent of those sins, we believe that Jesus lived and died for us, that he's coming back again, that we confess him to be the Lord of our lives and submit ourselves to Christian baptism. He fills us with his Holy Spirit at that point, and that as we trust him, he helps us to do some of these things that I've talked about this morning. If that's a step you need to take this morning, don't let anything keep you from doing so. Let's stand and sing together.